0: Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, as we continue our study through the Psalms of Ascent. These are the Psalms that the people of God sing as they journeyed together to the temple a few times a year together with the people of God and to worship and celebrate. They were a guide for them on how to make that journey. They are for us, not a geographical guide, but a spiritual guide. They instruct us in maybe the clearest way in all of the Bible, step by step, from the moment we give our life to Jesus, Psalm 120, all the way until we get home. It instructs us on just how to walk with Jesus, how to trust and follow him. I was thinking this week, just in light of Father's Day, all of the great things that I received from my dad. Some uh, he knew he gave me, some he didn't know he gave me. And, you know, I was thinking as well, just this is a good thing to do, whether you had a good relationship with your father or a bad relationship with your father, to just stop and be aware that there are probably some good things that you've received from him and to rejoice in that and, and if he's still alive to thank him for that. But I've got a lot to thank my, my dad for. I mean, first and most obviously... Is, um, is my hair. That came from my dad. I'm thankful for that. And they say it comes from your mom's side, but that's not true. Uh, these uh, beautiful locks came from Bailey Smith. This is all him. And so I just rejoice in that, really grateful. Um, but I think about a lot of other little things, uh, my deep love for old school country and Western music and just a lot of really important things that my dad gave to me. I think about my love for the local church. My dad was in the ministry and there's so many things about my ministry that, were affected by my dad, he really had a vision for an exciting church, for a joyful church, uh, for a church where everybody that walks in says to themselves, it must be good to know Jesus. And that really impacted me. Part of the way in which I envision a church with lights up and joy and excitement and celebration for Jesus comes from him. And I'm, I'm really thankful for that. I love to seeing people saved and all of that. But I think the one thing I'm most grateful for that I received from my dad, and some of this was me watching him Some of this was his intentional investment of this in my life, is something that I despised growing up. I resented him for this. I hated when he tried to teach me this, but he was committed to it. Uh, And no matter how much discomfort or frustration it caused me, he was committed that I would grow up with one thing. And now, looking back, after he's gone, it's probably the thing I'm most thankful for it's that he gave me a good work ethic. What an incredible gift. He wanted to make sure not only that I saw him working hard, which he was a very hardworking man, but he wanted to make sure that I understood the value of work and to ensure that I did work a lot growing up. And as much as I hated it, I'm so grateful to have that because I've realized as many of you have, there are no amount of gifts and no amount of talent and no amount of resources that can make up for laziness. You just can't make up for it. And and there's nothing that can take the place of just grit, of the ability to work hard. And I have seen throughout my life, and I believe my own life uh, is an example of this, it doesn't matter what lack of talent you have or what lack of abilities or all the things other people say are deficiencies in your life, you really can overcome a lot of those things by just deciding to work and to give good effort to the things that matter most. We were created in the image of God to work. I said last week that God is an emotional being and we were created in his image to have emotions and those matter. So it is, I can say this week, we were created in the image of God because God is a worker and we were created to work. You know, work is not a part of the curse. Before sin ever entered the picture, work was created in something for us to do. Now weeds are a part of the curse, but work is not. Before the curse ever happened, God said, I'm calling you to be fruitful and multiply, to take dominion, to work, and to keep is what dominion means. God intended for us in a way that reflects his glory to work hard for his glory. And we do so, everything that we do demands it. And our family demands hard work. Our job demands hard work. Our school demands hard work. Our spiritual life demands hard work. And there's just nothing that takes the place of that kind of work. But all of us will come to moments in our life in which we realize through different circumstances there's just a limit to what our work can accomplish. We're going to come to moments in which we want something to happen so badly, but we know we can't will it to happen. We can't make it happen by just the sheer force of our will And many of us are good at making things happen. We just see something and we go for it and and we take it and we make it happen. But I promise you, if you have not already, you will come to moments in which you realize your work is not enough. When I think about the things that God has given me, the work of the church, the work of my family, uh, the work of my own spiritual life, I realize that the things I really want to see happen the most The things that I long for the most, the most important things are things that I can't make happen no matter how hard I work. I'm still called to work hard and I can work hard to assemble a staff and we can work hard to put together a budget and we can work hard to get some facilities together and we can work hard to try to get people to come and build a church, but there is no amount of work I can put in to change your heart, to bring in the kingdom, to see people come to know Jesus Christ. And the reason Psalm 127 exists is because it reminds us that although our work is essential, it is futile unless God is doing the greater work. Although our work is essential, which it is for every era of our life, all of that work is ultimately futile unless God works as well. Look at how it teaches that in Psalm 127. If you're there, say amen. It says this. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now you might notice there in the prescript it says this is a psalm of, of Solomon. It makes a lot of sense. There is no one who is more renowned for their building than Solomon. The most glorious buildings ever built were built by Solomon. Not only the temple, but his own home. People came from all over the world to see the buildings of Solomon. He was renowned for his military abilities, for his ability to, as it says at the end of verse 1, to watch and to guard the city. No one in the Old Testament had a greater military than Solomon did. No one could overpower them in their glory days. No one knew more about vanity than Solomon did. Three times there it's mentioned, the idea of vanity. Solomon wrote an entire book about this, the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon saying to us, listen, I've received everything. There's nothing you've ever wanted that the world has to offer that I have not received, Solomon would say. And then his closing testimony from his life is this. It's all worthless without the Lord. And so he seems to be the right one to speak upon this subject But it's interesting to me, there was another area in which Solomon was also renowned, but not because he was great at it, but because he was an absolute disaster at it. Yet it's something he speaks to in this psalm. Renowned for his glorious building and military and his wisdom of the vanity of the things of the world. But Solomon's family was a disaster. All of the wives that he gathered throughout his life, and then his own children could not keep the kingdom together for the next generation, and everything after him and the next generations just got worse and worse and worse and worse. He did not, Psalm 78, invest in the next generation that they might come to know the Lord, and so Solomon's children did not know the Lord, nor their children's children. But maybe we don't look at Psalm 127 and say, well, Solomon's then not qualified to talk about this, but instead maybe we say Solomon's exactly the guy qualified to talk about this. Maybe we realize that in his life, with all of his mistakes and all of his understanding, Solomon has some real wisdom for us in these areas, and he really, really does. So let's walk through what he's saying here. Verse 1, one of the first things I notice is that this idea of working and laboring and building and protecting is expected from God. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. He's not saying don't labor. He's not saying don't build a house. He's not saying, Well, just let go and let God, and God will build a house. Houses aren't built that way. Houses are built with work, houses are built for labor. If you, want to be, if you want to build a house, you've got to get the things together. You've got to know what you're doing. You've got to put the wisdom in. You've got to take the effort to build the house. If you want to buy a house, you've got to work hard. You've got to save up money. Today, a lot of money, and you've got to buy yourself a house that somebody built. You don't buy a house and just think that that house magically appeared. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. God has ordained people to build these things. I think about as, as we have taught our children some basic truths of Scripture. One of the ones we teach them, of course, is that God created everything. And so inevitably, as little kids, they'll start asking questions. Well, God did. Well, Dad, did God build hippopotamuses? And we'll say, yes, he did. Well, Dad, did, did God build the, the, the sun? Did he make the sun? Well, yes, he did. Dad, did God make trees? Yes, he made the trees. Dad, did, did God make houses? Well, yes, he did. Well, no. Well, okay, hold on. This is, he didn't? No, he did. Just hold on. Let me think about it. And then you got to give that some thought because God made trees and God made people and God gave people wisdom to know how to do these things and all of those things together. People built a house, but they wouldn't have built a house without God because the reality is after creation, the things that have been built have been built by people who've built them. I mean the temple was God's idea and God gave the resources and God gave the wisdom but Solomon had to build it and this is just the way which God has ordained things to work. We have to build, we have to work, we have to labor if we want to see things happen. And then it talks about these watchmen that are been put there to protect the city and it says the watchmen stay awake and watchmen have to stay awake. You have to have watchmen. You have to have some type of protection and You have to have them stay awake. It's important for watchmen not only to be where they're supposed to be, but do what they've been called to do and to stay awake and alert. It's not a sin to lock your doors before you go to bed. It's not a sin to turn on the alarm at your house. It's not a sin to have a gun just in case somebody gets in. It's not a sin to protect. Our nation needs to have a military to protect us. You need to be aware, men. You know what it's like. You need to lay in bed at night and envision exactly what you're going to do when someone breaks in the house. I know you've done that. I've done, we've all done it. This is what guys do. We think about these kind of things, right? Pretty confident it would never go down the way I imagine it, but I've got a plan. Because it's important. It matters. The laboring, the building, the watching, all of that matters. Psalm 14, 20, I mean, Proverbs 14, 23 says this. All hard work leads to profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Hard work matters. It is a value that every person, every man, every woman, every child should have the value of hard work. But it is possible for all of our sweat and toil and a lifetime of work be all in vain. It says it three times. Those who build could labor in vain. Verse one, the watchman could stay awake in vain. That word vain is a heavy word. It means something that's empty something that's meaningless, something that doesn't really have any value. So think about what a sad thought this is, that it would be possible for you to spend a lifetime of working, even in such a way where people acknowledge that you have a good work ethic, and yet everything you've ever built and everything you've ever watched and everything you've ever accomplished was empty and meaningless and without any real value. That's a terrifying thought to me, but he's exactly what it says. It happens. And Solomon who has built and Solomon who understands vanity says it is possible for all of your work's effort, all of your life's effort to be empty and meaningless. There's three words that make the difference. Unless the Lord, I circle those in my text, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city. In other words, all of your building doesn't matter unless the Lord is also building and all of your watching doesn't matter unless the Lord's watching and you know this. You know you can do everything you can in your power to protect your children but God really has to protect them because you can't completely protect them from everything. And in all of the things you want to accomplish, you know that the things that you really want to see accomplished are things that only the Lord can do. And so he says, unless the Lord is involved in the process, Your building and your watching have no value whatsoever. They're empty and meaningless. In other words, our work without God's work doesn't produce any real lasting work. Our work without God's work, take God out of the equation and all of our work is meaningless. There is no lasting work of any value that really matters for any eternal purposes unless God is working as well. Now, the closest New Testament reference I can think of that is is John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, what's the last word? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you look at that and you think, well, that's not exactly true. I've done a lot of stuff without abiding in the Lord. To abide means to stay closely connected to the Lord. To acknowledge the Lord, to look to him for his resources, to look to him for his wisdom, it really refers to a moment-by-moment moment receiving everything I need from the Lord. So there is a way to live in which I'm not living independent of the Lord, but I'm living connected to the Lord. We just do that as we wake up in the morning and choose to be filled with the Spirit and say, Lord, I need you now, and I need you in this moment, and I need you in this moment, in this moment. I constantly need you. We stay closely connected. Now, I have done a ton of things in my life without being connected to the Lord. I've done a lot of things in the church without being connected to the Lord. I've done some things in my family without being connected to the Lord. I may have done some things today. You've done some things today in which you haven't been closely connected to the Lord. It's not that we can't do anything without being connected to the Lord. It's just that we can't do anything of any real lasting value. We can't do the important stuff. We can't do the stuff that lasts beyond our last breath. We can't do anything that matters. We can't do anything that produces life change. If we want the real work to be done, we must be connected to the Lord. And everything we do outside of that is meaningless, empty work. That is exactly the point of Psalm 127 verse 1. All of our work and all of our effort and all of our guarding and protecting is meaningless unless the Lord is working as well. Verse two tells us something else that's meaningless and empty. It is vain, and I I circled all the words, times where it says there it's, it's vain. It says twice in verse one, and then once at the beginning of verse two. Here's another thing that's vain. It's vain to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He's saying, Solomon's saying, listen, let me tell you another thing that's just empty and meaningless. It is having so much work to do and be so committed to your work that you're always waking up super early and going to bed super late and you always have this sense that I can't get it all done. Now, there are seasons in our life in which those things happen. But it's painting a picture of someone who's physically losing themselves. They're constantly exhausted and they're always saying something like this. I just don't have enough time in the day. I can't get it all done. Honey, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know how it's going to happen. Those kind of phrases. Now, let me tell you something. I tell this to men when I teach men. God has given you enough time to do everything he's called you to do, but he has not given you enough time to do everything he's called you to do and a bunch of other stuff he hasn't called you to do. That's true for everyone in this room. For you to say, I can't get it all done, means somewhere God has messed up. Either he hasn't given you enough hours, or he's given you too much stuff. That's not a true statement. But sometimes we live that way. And the result is, as my mother used to say, we work ourselves up in a tizzy. I don't even know if that's a word, but I grew up hearing it. We're just anxious, Right? We just, we can't get it all done. And so we just work and work and we stay up late and we get up early. Solomon says there's just a lot of, a lot of vanity in that. Like that doesn't, that, that doesn't matter. That's not a comp, that kind of life is not accomplishing anything. And let me just, let me just say this. I feel like at times a lot of that, the statements we make, I just got too much to do. It's really rooted in pride. It's rooted in your desire to let people know you're really busy. Can I just say something? Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. You don't have to oppress anybody with how busy you are. We're all busy. It gives this really interesting picture next. Look, it says this. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Here's the, here's the word picture here. The picture is, is of a man who's trying to provide for his family. And he's got to get bread for his family. But in his attempt to get bread for his family, he's working so hard that he's getting up too early. He's staying up late. He's an emotional and physical wreck. And he can't even give himself to his family because he's working so hard to provide for his family. There are a lot of men that have lost their families in the name of provision. So here's a man who's trying to do that. But the result is, is he's not just providing bread for his family. He himself is eating the bread of anxious toil. So what's happened is, he's eating just anxiety. He's just creating more anxiety for himself. You've heard me say this before in my study of of Philippians chapter 4. I came up with a definition for anxiety. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Here it is. Anxiety is your legitimate concerns without God in the picture. Almost everything you're concerned about is legitimate. Almost everything. So we worry about our kids and our finances and our future and our relationships and our school. So there's all kinds of things. And listen, it would be wrong for you not to be concerned about those things. They have to be on your mind. You have to be thinking about them and putting things in place to make them happen. But The reality is, when you think of everything in your life and you remove God from the equation, that's when anxiety settles in. If you take your finances and put God in the equation, you can rest. If you take your kids and put God in the equation, you can rest. But anxiety is when you take your legitimate concerns and remove God. That is Psalm 127, verse two. Here is someone who's working, 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 but they have not put God in the equation. And the consequence is, They're just eating the bread of anxiety and from the inside out, they're just dying. And frankly, now they're not any good to anyone, not their church, not their friends and not even their family. Look at this precious phrase at the end of verse two. For he gives to his beloved sleep. That's a great phrase. Really are, are two truths here. The first one is this. God gives sleep. Sleep's a gift of God. God has created us with certain rhythms in which we should live. He's created us to get up and to work. He's created us to put in a a hard day's work, no matter what uh, stage of life you're in. God has created us to work, and then He's created us to sleep. God created sleep. Sleep was God's idea. And I love that because I love to go to bed. I'm just being really honest with you. Man, I work hard. I really do. I give myself to the church. I give myself to the family. I love to sweat. I really love to work. And then I love to go to bed. Oh, it's such a great thing. And the truth is, every time you lay your head on the pillow at night, it's a reminder, listen, that you're not God. Psalm 121 says, God doesn't need a sleep. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't get tired. He never comes to the end of the day and think, my word, I'm so ready to get to bed. I'm exhausted. He's never tired. He's never exhausted. But listen, you're not God. And God gave you sleep. You're talking about people always talking about how much they have to do. I'll tell you what always irritates me is people who brag about how little sleep they need. I'm not impressed by that. Like, I wish I would get 10 hours a night. Like, I don't, I'm not impressed by your lack of sleep. Because sleep is a gift of a good God who has called you to work hard and then go to bed and sleep and rejoice in it and be reminded that you can't keep going without him. But there's another meaning to this verse. Probably, in a sense, the truer meaning, although it is true that God has given us sleep, but the real Hebrew translation of this would say something more like this. For he gives to his beloved, listen, in his sleep. Now, this is great. What that means is this. It means that in your sleep, when you stop working, God is still working. He is doing things for us in our sleep. In our sleep, God is active and God is working And so the God who never gets tired and never needs to sleep knows that you do. So the only reason I can go to sleep at night and the only reason you should be able to go to sleep is because you go to sleep with the confidence that at the moment you stop working, God continues working on your behalf and for your good. And so all the things you're concerned about, God doesn't check out when you go to sleep. God's still working. God's still doing those things he's still moving in the heart of the one that you love and you're worried about he's taking care of your finances he's taking care of things at work and all the things you're concerned about in your sleep God is still working what a beautiful thought I can go to bed right now I can sleep and not worry about anything else and trust that while I'm sleeping God's still working You know that phrase, you've heard it before, it's attributed to Ignatius, one of our great church fathers. It says this, pray as if everything depends on God, but work as if everything depends on you. You heard that phrase? I think I've used that in sermons in the past, it sounds great. And listen, I hate when a preacher does this. I hate when like a preacher critiques like one of our church fathers hundreds of years ago, like who am I to say anything about this? But I'm just telling you, as I've studied Psalm 127, I don't think that's a helpful phrase. It's not the point of Psalm 127 because there's never a time in which you're supposed to work like everything depends on you. You don't work that way. There's nothing about that that's right. There's nothing about that statement. Well, it's balanced by prayer as if everything depends on God. It doesn't work that way. You can't do both of those things fully. Anytime you work as if everything depends on you, you're working like everything depends on you and that's Pride. You don't ever work like everything depends on you. And you don't just pray like everything depends on God. I'm just going to let go and let God. No, I don't. You don't do that. Someone's got to build the house. There is a rhythm in which God has called us to live, it is a rhythm that I see in Psalm 127. It is a more healthy approach to the way in which God wants us to live. I believe there are two words that explain this rhythm and show us how life with God is supposed to work. And it is the balance between two very important things. And here they are. I believe these are the two words in which God is teaching us how to live in a balanced Holy Spirit rhythm. It is the words work and wait. That's the two words of Psalm 127. We work and and we wait. We do our work, we do it well, and then we trust the Lord to do his work. And there's never a time which we work as if it depends on us, and there's never a time where we don't do anything and act like it all depends on God. No, we do both. This is the balance of our life. We work and we wait. Think about it. We we work. We work. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do with all of your might. Listen, every area of your life that God has called you to demands your best effort. Now that requires you say no to a bunch of stuff that is not your God-given assignment. But if God has called you to a workplace, give it your best. If God's called you to a family, give it your best. If he's called you to the church, give the church your best effort. Whatever it is, God has called you to do it. If he hadn't called you to do it, give it no effort. But have the thoughtfulness to say, God has called me to this. This is an assignment for me, and I'm going to give it my best effort. And so we work. Every God-given assignment deserves our best. First 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul even says, I worked harder than the rest of them. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, I built and I watered. As a master planner and a master builder, I worked. Paul was saying, listen, if you want to build the kingdom, if you want to build the church, you got you to work. You know, because, because I have five kids, uh, I have heard multiple times in my life as kids are doing schoolwork, dad, why do I need to know this? You, you know this phrase, you felt this before. Now listen, I'm going to say my answer, honestly, and educators, I'm going to apologize in advance. I'm sorry. But here's my answer to that question. My answer to that question is, you probably don't need to know this. Now maybe that's just because I'm a pastor and I don't need to know a lot of that stuff. So I'm just saying you probably don't need to know precalculus. I don't know what you're doing with your life, but most areas of your life that you choose to live in, you don't need precalculus. I'm just saying that you don't need that. Like there's not a ton of areas in your future in which you need to know how to use the Bunsen burner. I'm just saying there's no, I've not found a lot of things post 10th grade where I needed the Bunsen burner. But Here's what you need to know from school. The most important thing you learn in school is how to work hard, how to plan a day, how to be focused, how to be disciplined, how to get a job done even when you don't feel like doing it, even when it feels futile, you work and you do a good job. I don't care what grades my kids get, but I care if they work hard. We work. Every area of our life demands work. Let me just say this. Your spiritual life demands effort. Are you still with me? Say amen. It's good enough. All right. Listen real quick. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. You can't work in your salvation. You can't save yourself. That is an act of a sovereign God that in his grace stirs up our heart, gives us a desire to receive the Lord. You understand that you're a sinner and there's no good works you can do to save yourself. So what do you do? You just look to Jesus. You see Jesus' death on the cross as a sufficient payment for your sin and his resurrection as the way in which you can get new life. And so without anything to offer that process, you throw yourself at Jesus and say, Jesus, would you save me? I'm tired of believing the lies. I wanna receive you as my Lord and Savior. And that's how it begins. There's nothing you can add to that. You just trust what Christ has already done. We talk about the finished work of Christ. Well, that's what it is. God has already done it through Jesus. Some of you this morning just need to take that step and say, Lord, I'm ready. I can't add anything. I'm just receiving it. Now, once you do, God works salvation in you. But listen, you must now work out what God has worked in. Now that you're a believer, you got to choose to wake up early and read the Bible. If not, there's no spiritual growth. You gotta choose to fast. You gotta choose to pray. This is spirit-infused effort that you have to do if you wanna grow. So we don't just come to Christ and just rest that God's gonna do it all. No, you choose to read this book or not. And there are basic spiritual disciplines that are required for us to grow. Every area of your life, including your spiritual life, demands work. But the other word is is to wait. Wait. We wait. One of the most important words in the book of Psalms. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait on the Lord. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait on the Lord. And biblically speaking, waiting is never passive. It's not passive, it's active. What it means is this, Lord, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna choose to trust you. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray that beyond my work, you're able to work. I'm gonna trust when I go to sleep, the God that you're still working. God, this is beyond me. I can't fix it. I can't change their heart. And so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna wait on you. I hate to admit this, particularly since there's no way he's gonna listen to this sermon, but the best definition of waiting I've ever heard comes from my older brother. He says this, waiting is doing all that you can do until God does what you can't do. Waiting is doing all you can do. So you work, but then at some point you have to stop and realize God has to do what I can't do. I've really been convicted lately on the way, particularly from the little story in Mark chapter 4. I won't read, but the way in which the kingdom works is like a sower that goes out and plants a seed, and he goes to bed, and he wakes up, and there's a crop there, and it says this, and he knows not how. He went out, he sowed, he worked, he watered, he did his work, but all of a sudden there's this great crop and you know what? No matter how much work he put in, if God wouldn't have showed up, it wouldn't have produced anything and he knows not how. That's life right there. I work, I work and I wait for God to do something good and then when I look back at it, the only explanation is God must have done it. And I want, man, I want that to be my life. Like seriously, when I die in this pulpit someday, go bury me out by our beautiful pond out here and put a little tombstone and it says, We know not how. God did incredible stuff, and we think about Josh and we think about what God did, and we can't figure it out. That's what I want my legacy to be. That beyond all of I don't want you to go, you know, he really worked hard, and that's why this happened. No, 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 no. I want something to happen to here so incredible that there's no possible way it could ever be attributed to me. Then you'll wake up and go, I know not how. Like, I want my kids. You look at my kids and go, I know not how. Andrea, yes. Josh, we have no idea. We know not how. (laughs) My family, my work, my finances, I know not how. That's how God wants to work. You work and you wait and you pray and you trust him. And you look back and go, I know not how. Because God was working the whole time. We work and we wait. We work hard. We sleep well. We trust the Lord to do things that we can't do. look at the next three verses. Don't worry, I'm not gonna spend as much time on those as I did the other ones. A lot of people wonder why these verses are here because they don't seem to fit. A lot of Hebrew scholars who get paid to write big books and question stuff. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with the previous thing. But the reason it's here and it's supposed to be here is because I don't know a better example of the need to understand the work and wait rhythm of life more than parenting. These verses aren't for kids, these verses are for parents. Children are a heritage from the Lord. That means they're like an inheritance. They're something of incredible value that you didn't earn. God just gave us a gracious gift. They're a reward. They're a joyful gift that God has given us. They're a blessing. That's the same idea that's used in the Beatitudes. Oh, the joy of walking with the Lord. Oh, the joy and oh, the blessing of these children, happiness and well-being. They're like arrows and we're the bow and we have the opportunity to to send these children out into life to do great things for God. And I just want to say right now in front of you, in front of my kids, one of the greatest joys of my life is parenting. I love my kids. Uh, you can take everything else away from me, but I love that the most. That's what I want to do. I'd rather be home than any other place on earth. But I want to tell you something else. If a parent does not understand the work and wait rhythm of life, their children will not be a blessing to them, but they will feel like a burden. And it's not the kid's fault. It's the parent's fault. So your mind might think, oh my goodness, these kids are such a burden. They always need this and they always need this. Of course, they do their kids. That's why God gave them parents. The weight that you feel is not the weight of their neediness and dependency. The weight that you feel is the need to work hard and go to bed well and rest and know that God is working in them in a way that you could never pull off yourself. So I just began to reflect upon this and, and think about all this says to us that parenting is like any other area of life. It demands effort. And like any area of life, you have to wait for God to do something. And I kept thinking about how different versions of parenting kind of show me where people miss the work-weight balance. And then I begin to think it's not just parenting, it's every area of life. And what I begin to discern, and I'm gonna give you these quickly as we end, is... There are some little barometers. It's almost like little warning signs that come up on your uh, car to show you something's wrong. There are some barometers that when those rise up in you as a parent or as just any person in any area of life, if those rise up in you, it shows you that you're not functioning in the proper rhythm of working and waiting. So I wanna give them to you quickly, write these down. The first one is this. It is just that indicator of anxiety, of anxiety, If anxiety begins to well up in your heart in any area of life, then there's something off in the work-weight balance. It could be the anxiety is there because you're not working. It could be the anxiety is there because you're not waiting, but there's something off in the balance. I'm finding this generation of parenting. I didn't see this 15 years ago, but here's what I'm seeing. And I think it comes out of a good desire because maybe a previous generation didn't do things as well as we thought they should, whatever, but... I'm seeing a generation of parents who really love Jesus and they're really thoughtful and they really want their kids to be great. And so they spend a lot of time reading books and listening to podcasts and a lot of time trying to figure out their kids and a lot of time doing family worship, all of this stuff. But listen, they're so overwhelmed because they're afraid their kids are gonna turn out bad. The reality is they're not enjoying themselves, Jesus or their kids because they're just so worried about their kids. And can I just say this to you? There's a limit to what your parenting can pull off. There's a limit. And you do well. You love your kids. Read some books if you want to. I would just frankly skip the books and read Proverbs. But you can, you can do all of that stuff and that's great. But what I'm, what I'm seeing is parents that are so passionate about making their kids great, they're not relaxed. And I have this little thing I tell, I tell younger, younger parents is that we always say, well, my second kid or third kid was easier than the first when they're babies. That's not true. It's not that the kids are easier, you're easier. You were so stinking uptight when that first one came. I was too. And our kids feed off of the anxiety. So we're anxious. They they can't describe it. They're anxious too. Listen, if your home is filled with the anxiety of making sure my kids are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, they feel the anxiety and the house is now all rules and no relationship and no joy. And life can get like that. We're just so overwhelmed by everything and this anxiety wells up. And what I would say to you is this, that that anxiety keeps us from just working well and praying and sleeping and trusting and watching what God can do. That anxiety is a barometer. Another one is is guilt. Guilt. When guilt begins to well up in your heart, it often comes from this, this feeling that I can never do enough. I told somebody recently, one of the things I'm dealing with the most right now is guilt is adults with grown children who are guilty because their kids didn't turn out the way they thought they should. This is like a big thing that I deal with a lot right now, people coming to me. And I'm not cynical. I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not prone to fatalism. Like I believe our work matters and we raise our kids and we love them well. I also know this. I've known some really great parents that had messed up kids and some really messed up parents that ended up with some good kids. That's not fatalism. It's not cynicism. What it is is this. You do your best. You love your kids well. You give them the time and attention you deserve. You walk with Jesus, the most important factor. You walk with Jesus, and at some point, you gotta stop and trust the Lord to do what you can't do. And you gotta get the guilt off. Because they're their own individuals. They have their own brokenness. They have their own baggage, and they make their own decisions at some point. Some of us are just weighed down with the guilt of everything we haven't done and all that we should have done. Now you work, you wait, you rest well. The final one is this, is that barometer of exhaustion. Anxiety, guilt, exhaustion. You never stop, you're doing too many things. You're always overwhelmed. I don't know, here's the biggest thing I can't figure out with modern parenting. I don't know why parents started to think that their kids need to experience everything. You're, my parents, I don't think ever struggle with this. Your kids don't need to be involved in everything. They don't need to go to everything. You don't have to sign them up for everything. Maybe you just don't want them around. I don't know what it is. But like, you don't have to sign them up for everything. Parents are just overwhelmed and exhausted. And and they're just, the the reality is they no longer have meal time. They're no longer enjoying each other. They're no longer talking or going on vacation because they're so overwhelmed by all the things they're doing. And what I want to say, is this. There's something wrong in the work weight rhythm of life. And you're not giving any space and time to just love your kids and build relationships and know them. The greater work is the work that's being missed because you're just so overcommitted to a thousand things. You're doing work, but you're doing the wrong work. And that can happen in a lot of areas of our life. We are so overwhelmed and so overworked, but we could be missing what is the most important work. And the reason you can't say no to this, to say yes to this, is because you don't trust God enough with this. But if you can wait, for God, on this, you can step over and be involved and give some work to this. But you got to learn to work and to wait. So here's the deal we are living in an anxious, exhausted, guilt ridden generation. And the reason is because most of us are living a lot of areas of life where we just no God is in the picture. And the words, unless the Lord, unless the Lord, bringing God into the equation, working hard and trusting Him. Some of you this morning need to work harder. I'm just telling you, some of you are lazy. You need to put some better effort into your home, better effort with your wife, better effort with your husband, better effort with your kids. Some of you need to work harder. Some of you need to just wait better. Lord, I've I've done all I can do. I don't know what to do. I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna go to sleep and I'm gonna sleep well. And here's the deal. Both of those things glorify God. You glorify him when you work and you glorify him when you wait because when you wait, what you're saying is this, God, I need you to come in and do what I am not able to do. And it's that rhythm of life, that balance of life that allows us to experience life as God intended it, the peace, the joy that comes through him and doing it his way. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.